the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Genesis. Jacob and the family are living in Egypt now. Jacob knows he is going to die soon. He has his sons come visit him that he might give them their inheritances and blessings. Here we join Pastor Will in Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. We have finally come to that climax of Jacob's life. He's at the very end. And he's blessed Joseph in chapter 48 by giving him a double portion and elevating Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons, to the level of his own sons. And he's trusted God's leading by giving Ephraim a better blessing, even though he's the younger. And so now he's going to face his sons with the knowledge of what the future holds for them and their descendants. In the giving of this family blessing, Jacob says and does some of the most difficult things a man needs to do. He confronts sin and he brings discipline in his kid's life. And in the end, we know that God requires every steward to be found faithful with what he entrusted him. And so as we see Jacob faithfully fulfill that task, do his job, and may it stir on us a desire to finish the race that God has set for us as well. So, Genesis 49, verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. This occurs immediately after Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. He wants each of them gathered there to hear what he has to say before he dies. And he explains, he says, I'm going to tell you what shall befall you in the last days. The phrase there actually means end of days. This refers, the phrase end of days, to God's plan as it concerns Israel and her Messiah. Thus, the end of days, and it really has, it encompasses a large period of time. I hear people a couple times ask me, they say, well, I don't understand. The, the day of the Lord, it talks about some things that happened here, and then the day of the Lord, it talks about some things that happened here. But that's a phrase that encompasses a very large time period. In the same way, the end of days, it encompasses the things that concern Israel and her Messiah. So it both concerns the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so Israel as a people, because they rejected their Messiah when he came, uh, it does not end there. That's not the end of his plan. So this prophecy, because really that's what the blessing is here, it's a prophecy, it stretches from both Jesus' first coming all the way to his second coming. And yet, if we read throughout the whole chapter, we see in verse 28 that it is indeed a blessing. Now, you might be thinking, I'm glad Jacob isn't the one blessing me. <laughs> Some of these statements are not very good. He doesn't have anything nice to say about Reuben and Simeon and a couple other people. But remember, before Abraham and Isaac died, they had to pass the covenant on too. And some children were blessed more than others. Some had a blessing that came with challenges or trials. Remember, you know, Esau, you know, I mean, not Esau, Ishmael saying he'd live like a wild man. The idea of being out, you know, in the desert, he would have some difficulties. 
And then some received a blessing that was a prophecy of bad times because of the bad decisions they and their descendants would make, like Esau. And so as Jacob passes on the covenant to his sons, it is a blessing, but it's similar to those other covenant blessings. Some of them end up disqualified. Some are warned of what the future holds if they don't repent. And in this sense, it is true prophecy because it speaks forth God's word in a way that it hits the heart and a true blessing because God is speaking truth to their hearts in order that they might change. You know, have you ever been blessed by a sermon or a message or a brother or sister coming up to warn you about the dangers you were facing because of your decision making? It ends up being a blessing because if you take heed to it and you pay attention to it and you act upon it, you avoid trouble, right? So that could be a blessing as well. Well, first off, verse three starts with the oldest, Reuben. And he looks at Reuben, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. This is the one who should have received the blessing and the preeminence. He is the one, he says, you're my strength. And that refers to a man's uh, virility, the idea that he would be the first of many sons to be produced by Jacob. That was a, a blessed trait to have as a man in that day. If you could not have children or you could not produce sons, you were considered less of a man. And so he says, you came along, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, my strength, everything that embodied my manhood. And you were, he says, the excellency or the preeminence of dignity and the preeminence of power. Two blessings would be conferred upon the oldest son normally. The preeminence of dignity, the word there, a phrase there refers to high social status. This was a phrase that was associated with the one who would receive that double inheritance, the double portion. Now, we already know that Jacob has given it to Joseph. Reuben doesn't know that yet. The phrase, the preeminence or excellency of authority, refers to the second part of the blessing that would normally be given. And this phrase was associated with the one who had become the new family leader, the new family chieftain in that culture. Now, culturally, both of these should have gone to Reuben as the first one born to Jacob. But as we see in verse 4, Jacob disqualifies him from both. For in verse 4, he says, you were all this. This was your potential. But unstable as water, you shall not excel. You won't have the preeminence. Why? Because you went to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, unstable as water, you know, you think water is pretty stable. You put it in a pot and it stays there. But the word there, unstable, it actually means the frothy thing that happens when you boil water. It starts to bubble up. And you don't know where the bubbles are coming from. They're random. That's the idea of the instability. And the idea is it's turbulence. It came to be a picture of a lack of self-control, particularly in the sexual realm. It became to the idea of a guy who just lived life without any rules, without any laws. And that's the type of person that Reuben was. He says, Reuben... I knew about the fact that you slept with one of my wives. I know about what you'd done. See, Reuben assumed that he was the blessed one, so he lived how he pleased. I'm the oldest, I can do what I want. He presumed authority over the rest of his brothers, but in the end, he only abused it for his own well-being. And thus, his sexual deviancies and poor leadership disqualified him. It's interesting, Reuben's descendants never had the preeminence in Israel's history. No judge, prophet, or ruler sprang from his tribe. In fact, his tribe never entered the promised land, but they settled on the east side of Jordan. Now, while these words, imagine, fell like a hammer upon Reuben, this is not what he was expecting. There is always an opportunity for redemption. And while there was no tribe of Reuben in Jesus' day due to them being scattered by the Assyrian Empire... The Bible does show in Revelation chapter 7, verse 5, 
something very interesting, that God was not done with them yet. Revelation 7, verse 5, right after Judah, which we'll know the importance of that in just a moment, it lists that of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. 12,000 faithful servants of God are listed in Revelation 7, 5 from the tribe of Reuben. And you know what I think that shows us? I think that shows us that you and I are not bound by the mistakes of those who went before us. We're not doomed to repeat those same mistakes. See, each of us have a choice to walk with God. We make our own choices. And if we make the right choice, even though those who went before us failed, God can still use our lives. And so I want to encourage you tonight. Maybe you might be the only one in your family walking with the Lord. Maybe, maybe you've got a history of a family doing things a certain way and failing in certain areas. I remember I, I had a young lady that I was talking to, and she had a boyfriend, and I had gotten to know her. She worked with me, and she's one of my shift managers. And so I'd gotten to know her a little bit, and I found out that she had been born out of wedlock, and her mother had been born out of wedlock, and her grandmother had been born out of wedlock. And so I cautioned her. I said, you know, Satan has a funny way of trying to get people with the same thing. I should be really careful with your boyfriend. Well, she didn't take it very seriously, and lo and behold, she came to me one day and said she was pregnant. We all have the opportunity to break those cycles, but just realize that's a choice you have to make to be different. Well, we get to verse 5, and so we move to the next one. Will these guys get the blessing? It says, Simeon and Levi. Oh, probably not because he's talking about two at once. He says, they are brethren. Now, we already knew that they're brothers, so I think what Jacob is saying here is that these two guys are inseparable. They are alike like peas in a pod. And you know, these two brothers fit that description, so they get the same blessing. And while they should have been next in line to receive the covenant blessing, they're disqualified too. He says, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. The word their habitations, it refers to the inner principles that guide a person's life. You know, what's, what is it that, got, that helps you to make choices in life? What is the guiding principle of your life? Hopefully it's the scriptures. But see, instruments of cruelty is what guided them. See, whatever the problem was, you know what their solution was? Well, let's just take it by force. Let's fix it by force. Their solution was always violent. He goes, he says, oh, my soul, do not come into their secret or into their counsel. He says, unto their assembly, let not mine honor come. Be not thou united. For in their anger, they slew a man. Remember, they actually wiped out an entire city. Remember when Dinah was raped by the son of Hamor, the son of Shechem? And what happened? They took their revenge by killing everyone on the third day after they all agreed to be circumcised. In their self-will, it says they dig down a wall. It's a bad translation. The phrase dig down a wall means to hamstring an ox. In their self-will, it means for pleasure or fun. For pleasure or fun, they would just cripple an animal. That was how they, that, they got their, their fun. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce. And their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so we see they do not receive the covenant blessing either. They are skipped just like and disqualified just like Reuben was. After the conquest of Canaan under Joshua, Simeon was actually absorbed by Judah almost overnight. You look at most maps, there's no Simeon there. In fact, when Moses blessed all the tribes of Israel just before his death, he didn't give Simeon one because they had dwindled to such a small group. Now, Levi, on the other hand, they didn't receive a common land. When Israel fell into idolatry, the tribe of Levi did side with the Lord. And so God chose them to be his priests. And they received 48 cities to live in throughout Israel. They were truly scattered, just as Jacob prophesied. Now, when Jesus came, Simeon was no more. But the Levites, well, they were still around, weren't they? They were the scribes, the Pharisees. All the religious leaders, they were the Levites. 
These guys reverted back to their old violent ways, opposing their own Messiah with the cruel and harsh call for his crucifixion. In fact, their counsel was murderous from the beginning. Turn to John chapter 10 with me. Actually, John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus says this about these religious leaders, these Levites. He says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Their responsibility was to teach the word of God to the people. But he says, my word, it finds no home in you. You still have that same guiding principle that your forefather had. He says, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. And they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. But Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Well, they resorted to name calling at this point. We weren't born out of wedlock. We weren't born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither did I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Why? Verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your devil you will do, of, the de- of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is the liar and the father of it. That was Levi's legacy, sadly. But like Reuben, there's always a chance for redemption. 12,000 servants of God, not just from Levi, but also from Simeon are listed in Revelation 7 as well. Someday, they will respond to the Lord correctly. Back in Genesis 49, we now move to the fourth-born son, Judah. And here Jacob finally has something good to say. Judah, you are he whom your brethren shall praise. Here he's telling him, you're the one that's going to get the blessing. Your hand shall be in the neck of, upon the neck of your enemies and your father's children shall bow down before you. Here it is. He makes it very clear. Judah is the one who is going to be the chieftain. He's going to be the one who will lead the family. And you know what? None of the brothers should have been surprised by this. See, who was the one who put his own life on the line to save Simeon and Benjamin when Joseph hadn't revealed himself? It was Judah, right? He said, take me prisoner and let them go back home to my father. He'd already become their leader by his actions. But what's fascinating is, is that Jacob has already given the double portion to Joseph. Jacob does something so interesting here by splitting the blessings, something completely unheard of in that culture. First Chronicles 5 verses 1 and 2 explains it. So turn there with me real quick. I know we're moving around a little bit more than usual tonight, but I think some of these verses explain some of the things that Jacob is saying much more clearly than just reading it. First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 is going over the people of Israel again, their genealogies. He says, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, but then here it explains, for he was the firstborn But for as much as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, and the genealogy is not reckoned after the birthright. But then it explains also this. For Judah prevailed above his brothers, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. So here we get a clear explanation of what Jacob did. He split up the blessings. That was unheard of. You never did that in a culture. 
See, this took great trust in the Lord for Jacob to do this because it could have started a family war. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a a parent die, go home to be with the Lord, or a parent pass away, and now you and your brothers and sisters are in a whole lot of stressful situation because one of those brothers and sisters doesn't like exactly how things were laid out in the will? I'm amazed at some of the mean and nasty things I've heard people say and do right after the death of someone that is very close to them. Jacob is taking a big step of faith by saying, God, you know what you're doing here? Because this could put us in in my family in a big pickle. But he did trust God. He knew this was God's plan, so unconventional or not, he obeyed and he splits up the blessings. Judah gets the leadership role, he gets the covenant blessing, and Joseph gets the double inheritance. I know this is a reminder to us that we need to obey what God says in his word even when it runs counter to the cultural norms of our day. And I would say that we have plenty of opportunities today, don't we? (laughs) We have plenty of opportunities to do things that run counter to the cultural norms of our day. Are we doing it? Are we taking a stand and saying, listen, this is how I'm gonna handle this because this is the right way to do this. I remember I had a boss come to me one time and he said, listen, he said, uh, I don't want you hiring any more black or Hispanic people. And I said, come again? <laughs> I don't want you hiring any more of those. I'm trying to portray a certain image here at, at, at my store. And I said, listen, you made me the person who does the hiring here. You're asking me to do something that number one is against the law and number two is unethical. I'm gonna hire the very best people. I don't care what their ethnic, ethnic background is. If you don't, want, you don't like that, then you can do the hiring and you can find someone else to do my job. Now, at that moment, I could have gotten fired. <laughs> but it was the right thing to do. I wasn't going to preserve my job just because, well, he likes things to be a certain way. No. We need to obey God, what he says in his word, no matter who the opposition might be. Verse 9 He goes on to explain now Judah's blessing. Not only will he be the one who will rule, but he says here that kings will come from Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. and From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The idea here is he's describing the history that Judah will have. He will eventually become that preeminent tribe in all of Israel. David, of course, came from the tribe of Judah, as did the rest of the kings of Judah. Throughout that time, young lion to old lion, Judah reigned until their defeat by Babylon in 597 BC. But verse 10 says this, the scepter, that symbol of ruling, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now that is an interesting phrase. What in the world does he talk about? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The right to rule will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come? Who's Shiloh? Well, Shiloh is a personal name. It means he whose right it is. And see, each king of Judah was to be a steward of this covenant until the one who would complete the covenant came, until the one to whom the scepter rightfully belonged to, and they would turn it over to him. Because of this, the Jews considered this passage to be one of the earliest prophecies of the Messiah. They consider Shiloh to be one of the earliest names of their Messiah. And they believe that when he came, the king's job would be to turn the right to rule over to the one to whom it rightfully belongs. You say, but wait a second, Will. That's 600 years between their defeat by Babylon and the coming of Christ. Well, 
Even though Judah was defeated by Babylon and no longer had kings, they were actually allowed to govern themselves throughout their history. When the Babylonians brought them in, they set them by a few different cities. Tel Aviv is one of them. It's why we have the name now Tel Aviv in, in Jerusalem. It was from one of those Babylonian cities that they were staying in. They kept them all together, and they did not intermingle other people groups. They allowed them to govern themselves. And so while they were there, and then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, the Persians allowed them to go back to their homeland. And even then, they allowed them to govern themselves. When the Greeks came in and they conquered the Persians, it's interesting, it's a fascinating story. When you get to the book of Daniel, we'll look at how the Bible prophesied Alexander the Great coming into the promised land. So when Alexander the Great actually came into Jerusalem, he was going to level the city to the ground, the priests came out and they showed him how he was in their, their prophecies. And so he decided he'd let the city stay and he let them govern themselves. The Romans eventually defeated the Greeks and then they let the Jews govern themselves until the year AD 7. See, in AD 7, Herod's son, Herod Archelaus, was dethroned and exiled to Vienna. He was partially Jewish. And he was the one who oversaw and he governed through the Sanhedrin. Caesar Augustus, at that point in time, replaced him not with another Jewish ruler, with a Roman procurator who removed the right of self-government from the Jews for the first time in their history. Now, when the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of their right to self-govern, chapter 4 of the Babylonian Talmud records their response in folio 37. And I quote, They covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, exclaiming, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. Little did they know that Jesus was a young man serving with his father as a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. He had come. He had just not revealed himself yet. And yet, what did the rulers of Judah do when Jesus revealed himself? Did they turn over the scepter? No, they clung to it forcefully. And they rejected him, shouting to Pilate these very audacious words. We will not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. Why would you say that? You lamented the right that you couldn't self-govern, but now you reject your own Messiah and you say we will have Caesar to be our king. And thus the Bible says that the kingdom offer was withdrawn. The promise that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all nations did not come to pass at that time. Instead, the one who deserved the scepter gave his life and he shed his blood to redeem mankind. Now, when he comes the second time, it won't be the Lamb of God to be slain for sin. It will not be the peaceful Messiah riding upon the donkey. But it will be the King of Kings who will tread out the winepress of God's wrath. Let's look back here to verse 11 of chapter 49 of Genesis. Binding his foal unto the vine and his donkey's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Fascinating. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, when he comes to the people, the Shiloh comes and unto him will the gathering of the people be, but the people will not gather unto him. And so instead of taking that donkey and continuing on with a, with a reign over his people, he will bind it to the vine. He'll take that colt and he'll bind it to the choice vine. He's done doing things that way. But now he will wash his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. 
When Jesus came to Jerusalem and was heralded as the Messiah for the first time, he came peacefully riding on the donkey. But what picture do we find of Jesus' second coming? We find a very different picture. Turn to Isaiah 63 with me. Isaiah 63, prophecy of the return of the Messiah. And when they see him, it mentions here that this will be the question they will ask. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And what's the answer? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is that? That's the Lord, right? Well, then they ask the question when they see him. Wherefore, or why are you red in your apparel and your garments like him that treads the wine fat, just like Jacob prophesied? And he explains, I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all of my clothing. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in my anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Turn over to Revelation 19. It says the same exact thing about Jesus in his return the second time. Revelation 19, verse 11. Go to the very last chapter of the Bible and turn a few pages left. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in what? In blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven, they followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Exactly what Jacob prophesied here in Genesis chapter 49. Pretty cool, huh? The whole history of the Lion of Judah right here in Genesis chapter 49. No matter how your life has ended up, whether you've failed and messed up, or are the victim of someone else's sin... God can restore you and make you whole. You can finish the race. Not just finish it, but finish it strong. With God, anything is possible. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.